continue with uh, Ms. Wait. Yeah, hi, everybody. Good to see you. Hi. I think we're going to deviate a little bit from the topic we chose a few weeks ago. Considering the events of this past week, and actually today, there's a terrible tragedy in the world. And um, you heard about that? The plane. Very sad. So, um, so I think what we're going to do is this. Uh, we're certainly not going to explain why bad things happen to good people because that's not within our capacity to do. But what we, what we can do is we can talk about how we're supposed to um, approach this, the problem, um, you know, the problem of not understanding how Hashem conducts the world. And after we discuss that a little bit, specifically going through the paradigm of the book of Eov, that's what it's all about. We're going to take the idea that we identify, that's a critical idea of Eov, and then we're going to ask a question about Pesach. And we're going to tie in the two things. Specifically, what we're going to focus on tonight is something that seems very like, remote because we haven't done it in thousands of years and we don't do, and in general, the whole practice is obsolete, and that is this. At Pesach sacrifice, where they sacrificed a little lamb, a little baby sheep. And uh, we're going to discuss that a little bit. In the time of the temple, they actually did that every Pesach. They, they killed the ram, they slaughtered it the proper way, and then they ate it. By the way, if you're a vegetarian, and you're a very observant Jew, and you want to keep all the mitzvot in the Torah, you'd, the only time you ever, ever have to eat meat is once a year a couple of ounces of the carbon Pesach, of the Pesach, the meat of the, of the sheep on Pesach. But other than that, you're, you don't have to ever eat meat. You probably shouldn't be eating too much meat, that's the truth. But um, certainly not American meat. But maybe Canadian meat is a lot healthier than American meat. But that's a separate issue. But anyway. <laughs> um, but so let's start talking about the book of Eo because the tragedy that took place, you know, is beyond the, the, you know, we can't deal with it with our minds and we're kind of scared probably to even deal with it with our hearts because it's too much. So, um, so let's think about the book of Eo. Now, if you want to do a study of Eo, there happens to be an excellent pasuk by pasuk, verse by verse explanation and exploration and in-depth analysis. In English, it's called Rav Schwab, that's my grandfather, on Eov. There are a number of excellent books that have been written by my grandfather, one on prayer, one on Isaiah, Isaiah, which is all those prophecies about the end of days, and there's one on Eov. It's a big book, and Eov is a big book. But you really get into the, the depths of these ideas and these, um, the back and forth, the discussions about these ideas. So let's talk about Eov. Anybody know the story of, the jo of Job? Okay. So, Eov, you've heard of Job, right? Job? Okay. So, Eov might or might not have existed as a real person, or he might be an example for us. Good chance that there was such a person called Eov, because there are Eov-like people in the world. Essentially, this is what happens. God tests Eov. God tests. We're not exactly told, told in the beginning what the test is. But God tests Eov, and in one day... He loses all his children and all of his wealth. And in addition to that, after 
losing his children and his wealth, where he refuses, as many Jews and people have done in the course of history, refuses to get angry, to accuse, to deny any of those things to, regarding God, of course, refusing to accuse God or, or divorce himself from God or complain, refuses, accepts God's decree, surrenders to God's decree. He then gets afflicted physically with tremendous physical suffering, at which point he breaks down. And the bulk of the book is conversations, arguments actually, between his friends who come to visit him and him. And for numerous chapters, like close to 40, they pose different arguments that basically go along these lines. They say, look, we have a couple of absolutes here. God knows everything and is involved in the world. God is just and God is kind and God's world makes sense. Therefore, if you are suffering, you must deserve it. So you need to look into yourself and find your guilt. And as long, as soon as you find your guilt and divorce yourself from it or repent from it, you know, the suffering will probably go away. So Eo refuses to accept this argument. He says, I am perfect. And the Sefer, the book, in its opening, says that God himself says, I'm going to test you, who is perfect and righteous and just, and there is no one like him in the entire land. So God himself says Eov's just. So it's not arrogance, but Eov says, I am perfect, I have no sin on my record, I reject your argument that because God is just and kind and runs the world and knows everything and he wouldn't cause an innocent person to suffer, therefore I must be guilty. And they bring up all different angles to this argument, showing how Eov's reasoning is illogical, and he has to accept his guilt. What are the other options here? And Eov refuses. Now, Eov, Eov's essential argument to God is the following. Eov says to God, I am not guilty. And I'm not saying that you are that you are unjust, and I refuse to accuse you or to get angry or, God forbid, to curse you or to do anything. I accept your decision. There's only one problem I have. You want humans, you want us, to, you want us to love you with our heart and soul, fully, without any barriers to that love, and I don't want to be a hypocrite. I cannot fully love you with my heart and soul if I don't have some sort of understanding of why you're doing this to me. In other words, I cannot fully love God if I don't understand him. That was Eov's issue. If Eov, that is why, by the way, although Eov is very righteous, and in the end, we're going to see he gets a prophecy and he understands, and uh, he's a very great person. However, he's considered as failing his test. Had he passed the test, we would be saying that our patriarchs were Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Eov. That's what the Talmud says. So, what the test that he failed was coming to terms with the fact that he could, it's possible, like Abraham, like many of our Jewish ancestors, and probably other humans too, have learned and have reached a level where they understood that they could accept and fully, with their heart and soul and mind, everything fully of love God, despite the fact that we don't understand Him. And, under, and recognizing that, of course, there's limitations to our understanding. Now, 
This argument goes back and forth for many chapters, and Eov goes through his own journey. First, he denies that God is involved in the world in the, in the beginning. Then he says God doesn't care. You know, he goes through a few things which he then comes to terms with, and let, let, he lets those things go, and he accepts that God knows, and he cares, and he's involved, and despite that, this is happening. So there are three friends who keep arguing. Now, at the end of the book, before Eov's great um, epiphany, so um, what happens is God appears to Eov, God speaks to Eov, which means that Eov entered into a state of deep meditation. All prophecy comes through meditation. Got himself into higher levels of consciousness and became aware of truths that he did not know earlier. And God communicates to him whatever that experience feels like. We don't know. Prophecy has been removed from us, but some type of extreme state of high meditation and communion. And... Um, and God says to him, and this is what the book records. And by the way, you know who wrote the book? The book is written by Moshe, Moses. Just because if you were the found, not the founder, but if you were the person responsible for teaching a new religion in all its details, wouldn't you think you'd have to deal with this question? And you'd have to have an approach to give to your people about this question? So of course, this is the question. So, um, so Hashem says to Eov, your friends are guilty on two accounts. They're guilty in that they insisted on accusing an innocent person of being guilty. And furthermore, they're guilty because of why they did that. They're guilty because they felt they needed to accuse you in order to defend me. They were trying to defend me, and they have no right or need. I don't need anyone to defend me. They felt that this God's ways could be logically put into an equation, and in order to defend me, they simplified my conducting of the world into an A, B, C, A equals B equals C equation, and that's it. Now, that's wrong. You're not allowed to do that. It's forbidden to do that. They're considered very guilty and very wicked for doing such a thing, for trying to come to a, some logical explanation that made everything make sense. I just heard a speaker, by the way, beware. If something doesn't sound right, say, where did you get those sources from? I just heard a speaker. I heard him online. He has 20,000 views, a Jewish guy. 20,000 views for his stuff, and he said something that was absolutely wrong and literally paganistic. He said, why do you think a blind person is born blind? And I'll tell you who he is, because you should not be fooled by him, and you should not listen to him, and his name is Yosef Mizrahi. Rabbi Yosef Mizrahi. Okay. He said, why do you think a blind person is born blind? You think it's just random that poor, poor, poor child is born blind? No, of course not. He's a criminal. He's guilty because in his previous life he looked at filthy things. So the pagans believe that too. You're blind because you're, in your previous life you did something wrong. And the snake god, the snake god in Tibet, I saw a movie about this once, the snake god cursed you. And because you're being punished for your sins in a previous life, that by conclusion... I should not have Rachmanis on you. I should not help you because who might interfere with the will of the gods, right? And I certainly shouldn't heal you. And what's the point of looking and doing research and finding out why people go blind? It's because they're being punished. And I have no pity for you. Well, this is the antithesis of anti-Jewish thinking. There's no such thing. So he's trying to make sense of why the guy is blind. He's trying to say that God is just. This guy is blind because he deserves it, right? This is exactly the story in Eov. The Eov, God said, your friends are supremely guilty and considered wicked for trying to create an equation that makes sense, thinking they're defending me, and therefore they accuse you. Okay. 
So then there's a friend who has been sitting quietly all along, and he pops up in the, towards the very end of the book, after all the arguments have been presented, and Eov is insistent. In fact, at one point, Eov says to God, okay, so let's have a trial. You say your side, explain why I'm suffering, and I'll say my side, and I'll, I'm allowed to ask why I'm suffering. Tell me, just tell me. But of course, Hashem doesn't answer him. So Elihu pops up at the end. His friend name, the friend's name is Elihu, and he says, I've been listening to all these arguments the whole time. And Eov, the reason you're having such a hard time, and you can't give up your demand to understand, is because of a very simple calculation. Here we are human beings. If nothing God did to us made sense, we'd have no question. If everything God did to us made sense, we'd have no question. But the problem is that most of the time things make sense. Most of the time you can see God's hand in history, in our personal lives. You can see God's blessings. You can see endless miracles around us on a constant basis. You know, we are so shattered when children are lost from this world. But every single minute, like, thousands of kids are being born, and it's like, no big deal. And it's, it, this, it's an equal, like, astonishing, you know, godly event. So... Um, so, so he says, mostly we do see God's hand. We see lots of divine guidance and blessings and, you know, and, 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 and bracha and concern. And therefore, when something like this happens to somebody, it's so out of sync. It's, does, it's, it's such a violation of what we expect, of what we're used to. And therefore, we can't make any sense of it. There's no place to put it. We don't have the tools to, you know, to process it because... It's not a rule. It breaks a general rule. That's the problem. The general rule is the opposite. So then Hashem appears to Eov and he says, I'm going to show you what's going on here. And he takes him, you read it in the book, it's very interesting, because it describes how Hashem takes him on a, I guess, in a state of meditation, you know, in a state of like, a higher, you know, higher state of consciousness, he takes him on a virtual tour of the universe. So first he describes to him that he shows him how there is precise godly knowledge and governance of every little thing in this world. Nothing's a free-for-all. Nothing's haphazard. Everything makes sense. Everything is managed. Nobody's just you know, suffering randomly. So he shows him, for example, how a gazelle gives birth you know, on the cliff, because that's where they live. And the little baby is born a little bit too close to the cliff edge. And it you know, teeters on its feet when it gets up and it falls over and an eagle passes by and f- catches it on its wings. All kinds of examples like that. He says, everything is being managed here. So, number one, Eo began to feel secure that although he might not understand why he's suffering, he's in good hands. Things are all under control. Okay? Nothing is senseless. And then God takes him into a deeper, into a deeper place. And he starts showing him the forces governing the universe. They have names in Eov. They're called the Leviathan and the Behemoth, but it's a code reference to energy and matter. He shows him the forces, the cosmic forces in play that explain what goes on here on a mystical level and on a, a metaphysical level. By the end of it, Eov says, I don't even need to know why I'm suffering. I know I'm in good hands. I'm totally, this is it's okay. Everything makes sense. It's got it. It all. It's so big and it's so perfect. My my situation is part of it, and I accept that. 
And Eov eventually, at the end of the Sefer, says, it was worth going through what I, what I went through just to experience this and to know this at the end. It was so satisfying for him to see what he saw. So the, the, that's the, a synopsis of Eov. And the upshot of it is that Eov learns, experientially, Hashem shows him, something that he couldn't achieve on his own, which is, you can trust God and love God, although you have no idea why certain things come into play and how God governs the world, you know, how he conducts the world in certain situations. But it's very hard for a human being to let our intellect kind of like just kind of like just like put it aside and say, this is not a place for the intellect. God created our intellect, obviously with limitations just like our physical muscles have limitations. You know, you might be able to bench 300, but no one's benching 1,000. You know, maybe, you know, we're lifting a house or whatever. So, the, uh, maybe one crazy person. But there's a limit to even the strongest person in the world. So, same thing with our brains. So now, what happens is we have to put together what we know, what we feel, and what we know we can't know, and then let ourselves feel beyond what we know. See, Judaism is not a religion of faith like Christianity. It very, very, very much is a religion of intellect and knowledge and explanation. But there is a point where beyond which intellect cannot take us. And at that point, we have a challenge, and that is to let the heart go anyway. So Avraham, in the story of the binding of Yitzchak, right, was never meant to actually kill him. But that's the story that shows that for the Jewish people, what we learned was that sometimes you have to do what Abraham did. Not, it wasn't sacrificing Yitzchak. That wasn't what he accomplished. He sacrificed his capacity, his desire to understand. That's what he put on the altar and sacrificed. His mind, his need to understand everything. He sacrificed that. So this is a big challenge for us. And we'd like to have a working, you know, have everything make a lot of sense. And we'd like to also not only have, a, make, have everything make sense, what we do is what the Friends of Eve did. We come up with rationalizations to help us make things make sense. And uh, they, they, they made a terrible error in their case. And now we're going to look at another example. Now we're going to go to Egypt and look at another example of a, of a human, you know, of human nature in its less beautiful forms. Um, and how we like everything to make sense. And we come up with uh, equations and excuses to help it all work together seamlessly, just like Eob's friends. So here we're going to ask a question. Has anybody in your studies learned the following idea? That the reason the Jewish people were told by Moshe, one of the first mitzvahs we ever got in Egypt, was to go get a sheep. Um, the beginning of the first of the day of Nisan, the first of the month of Nisan, which is Shabbos, this past Shabbos, and tie it to your bed and watch it there for 10 days, 14 days, whatever it was, and uh, what was it? And then, uh, and, and the 14th of Nisan, you go and you slaughter it and you offer a sacrifice to God, and you eat it. You, you sacrifice it and you eat it and you make a dinner out of it, and that's going to be the dinner eventually became the Seder. By the way, side point. Never in history was there, was there such a notion that a human being could eat of God's sacrifice. It was like crazy, right? Why would a human being sacrifice to God and then eat it? 
what does that say? What does that say about the person and their sense of who they are in this world? No pagan would have the audacity to eat from God's sacrifice. You tell me, eating from the sacrifice means that we are a, a godly partners. Partners, not pawns in a cruel and heartless and God's hands to do what he wants with, appeasing in terror. Partners, okay. In any case, anybody learn why they had to take a sheep? Never? Yeah. I wasn't wondering because uh, the Egyptians revered sheep so much. Right, okay. So this is a classic um, answer. Yeah? I was ever something else that, like, Nisan is like when we're led, so you, you, the connection is like to a sheep, and then the next month is a bull because you're supposed to, like, take, take action, and then the one after that is like another animal. Whatever the Sivan is another There animal. is, okay, so that's a nice thing, but the, that, the, I mean, that's not the reason. It's cute. And we'll actually get to the bull in a second. So um, it's actually good you said that, because the sheep and the bull. But the reason given, not so much, you know, it's not so much on the zodiac. The reason is given specifically relating to that generation in their circumstance. And the classic reason given is that in that time, in Egypt, the sheep was among their gods or very revered as a god. And they were showing that we... Totally, you know, have no respect for your gods. In fact, to us, we're slaughtering it, that we're choosing our god over your god, and that's what we're doing. There's only one problem. If you Google it or you go to the Met or go anywhere and try to look up what we're from the animal kingdom, because they had the sun god Ra and other, you know, different, many different gods. But in the animal kingdom, the main animal god was not the sheep. It was Apis, the bull. Ever seen that? A bull. And there's much in Egyptian archaeology and on their tombs and all their drawings of the bull. <coughs> a bull was their god. So, why are we slaughtering a sheep? That's the question. So, you know, you choose for a god what you identify with. And they revered the bull among the animals, which they obviously had there in Egypt. By the way, when they depicted their main, big, supreme gods, You'll notice, if you Google Valley of the Queens, where they found these enormous, like, uh, you know, gods on thrones, like 50 feet high, and, uh, and all kinds of other, there's a lot of archaeology there. How did they depict their gods? What do they generally look like? Anyone know? I don't know if I'm making it. Is it cats? They, ha- they were part cat. They usually had the face of a cat, like a lion. They would have the claws of a, you know, of, a, of, a, of an eagle or something, and the feet of a bear, and the, like look, a composite of cruel, vicious animals that prey on other animals. And what did they all wear? The what it was the classic crown. What did it look like that with the black and white stripes and the thing? It was a cobra. It was a snake. Vicious. And the king, of course, you know, imagined himself to be among the most feared and vicious and dominant animals that everybody was, you know, was afraid of. The way they depicted their gods was how they was was the way their society was conducted. It was about domination, cruelty, might makes right, survival of the fittest. How else do you get a, a, a society that enslaves another people, tortures other people, bathes in their children's blood, etc., etc.? Think about Germany. Hitler's motto was, 
will to power, which is another way, Nietzsche's way of saying survival of the fittest. If you have the power, you dominate, period. And you have a right to. Hitler was intending to turn the entire Russia into a slave camp to produce bread for Germany. And look what he did to everybody else. Forget about, you know, the first person, the first peoples that he killed, the first group of people he killed before he got to the Jews was? Hmm? Disabled, retarded, mentally retarded. This one. You know who he murdered? Lubavitcher Rebbe had a schizophrenic brother who was institutionalized, and he was murdered by the Nazis early on. He murdered all the, all the disabled. They're not fit to exist. So did the Greeks. So did the, all these pre-Jewish societies that believed in a division between the haves and the have-nots and took advantage of it. Now, the god of the Egyptians was the bull. The bull, among the animals that they could work with, that were, you know, common, was aggressive, dominant. Think of bullfights. Angry, desire, you know, trying to be dominant. The bull that gores. That was their national culture. And they made no bones about it. That was, they, they pride, you know, they prided themselves on it. Right? Now, what about, think about Germany, what they did. But every one of those Nazis, they went home, they had their dog, and their kids, and if the dog got a thorn in his paw, what do you think they did? Oh, they were so, you know, they wrapped it up, and they were so careful. So even in Egypt, they had their gentler, kinder side for themselves, for the people that are, they've selected to be allowed to, you know, be part of their culture. They had their sheep also. They didn't just have their bull, which was their god, which really was what they identified with and revered, and have statues of it all over the place. But they also had a, a lesser de deity, the sheep, and that also represented their gentler side that I'm sure existed. When the Jewish people slaughtered the sheep, and this idea, by the way, is from Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein. You can Google him too. Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein, he says, when they when they slaughtered the sheep, and why they were told to slaughter the sheep, is think about this, it makes a lot of sense. Jews have never had a legacy, like the Taliban or the ISIS, to go around and just walk into other people's cultures and destroy their, 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 their you know, religious objects. We don't go around killing your God. We're not interested in killing your God. If you, you can do whatever you want. You know? and if you come into our country and you want to live in Israel, you have to keep the seven laws, the basic seven human laws, but... We're not going into your country to attack you and destroy your religious uh, figures. They weren't killing their god. They were slaughtering the sheep to show that as Jews, one of the most basic notions that we adhere to is authenticity and not hypocrisy. You cannot be cruel to some people and kind to other people and put it all together in one nice legitimate way of life. Because by definition, if you're cruel to some people and kind to other people, what that comes from is the idea that no and people are not equal and people don't deserve the same dignity and the same rights. Now, you have two options. If there's a single God, and this was the new development that came with the Jews, the widespread notion of one God, the monotheism. This was the whole brand new idea that changed the world. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their families and the mothers 
right? They, it trickled down and stayed small. But at this point, it was going to explode in the world. That's what the whole story of Egypt, of the Exodus is. The one God controlling all of nature, doing all the plagues, you know, being able to manipulate everything. One God. If you have one God, so automatically, all people are the products, the Tzelemelukim, the, the children of one God. And we're all equally in God's image. There is no distinction. You will not find any distinction in the book of Genesis anywhere about some people are in the image of God and some are not. That isn't our, that's not our story. Our story is all people are created in the image of God. Therefore, where does the, the authority come for some people to torture, murder, control, abuse other people? Where does this stem from? Oh, it stems from a whole other ideology. There are many gods. And each god, some are inferior, some are superior. They're fighting it out up there. The strong one wins. And guess what happens down there? Each of those gods has their people. And their people are unequal. And they're fighting it out down here. And more than that. The gods don't like people. The gods don't care about the people. The gods punish the people. The gods make the people suffer. So if the gods behave like that, why don't we behave like that? And in paganism, so there's a movie called Blind Sight. You can Google that too. Blind Sight. It's a movie about Tibet. Tibet, they did a very good PR job about Tibet. And the truth is the Dalai Lama is a good person, seemingly, from what we know. And, uh, but the Tibetans originally were a very cruel, warmongering people. Okay? Buddhism probably calmed them down a little bit. But going back, the, so the, what happens in Tibet today, well, actually, it's, say, it's 15 years ago. Blind Sight is the movie. We saw it right here, actually, in the village. I took my kids. It's an unbelievable movie. So basically, in Tibet today, among the rural people, you know, not in, you know, there is a, a major epidemic of blindness, which we mentioned before. And the reason these kids go blind is because there's a lot of pollution and toxins in the water. They throw their dead bodies in the water. You know, they're very primitive. So what happens? What's the cause of the blindness, according to the Tibetans? The snake god has cursed them. In a previous incarnation, they did something wrong, and they're coming back cursed to live out their life as blind people. And by the way, this is how the whole caste system used to you know, work in India. You were born into a caste. It's because God is angry at you. You're living out some punishment. Therefore, you will never get out of your caste. We are not allowed to free you of your caste. You're stuck in your caste. Your children, your grandchildren, forever. And that's your, it's your karma. It's your fate your problem. And no one would interfere with the will of the gods because then the gods would be annoyed at them. And who knows what would happen to them. So you're stuck in these divisions. Uh, they're ultimately incredibly cruel. So in this movie, these kids go blind at like six years old and they're disposed of because it's a rural community and you, what are you going to do when you're blind? You can't like harvest and plant and, and shepherd sheep and whatever they do there. So they're abandoned on the streets. And they die of starvation, and they're abused along the way, and they beg, and some people give them some alms, and mostly they starve to death, and anyway, or die on the streets. So they even have footage of this old lady walking by, screaming at them, the snake god cursed you, and you're not even good enough to eat your father's carcass. Okay? So I told my kids, I said, do you think idol image worship, nature worship, do you think it's a avodazara, we call it? Do you think it's a sin against God? It's a sin against humanity. It's... it's it's forget about God. Look what it does to people. This belief in right. So then, once a year, the Buddhists in the temple there allow these children to come in, and they shake their smoky things at them, 
and they give him some alms once a year. Okay? So that's the story. So then this nice, this wonderful, two wonderful do-gooders, a German and an American, who had both been blind and then had both been born sighted and went blind, they decided they're going to help these children. And the story is, of course, and this is where Judaism comes in, it's not your fault if you're blind. We have to help these people. They're human beings. We introduced that idea to the world. No one else. It didn't exist before the Jews. We introduced one God. So this non-Jewish, German and American man and woman, went and they had this idea that they're going to gather up all these kids, they're going to create a school for them, and they're going to get them to climb Mount Everest. So the, the whole, a lot of the movie is showing how they got these blind kids, like three-quarters up Everest. It's pretty unbelievable. After this whole achievement, where the kids felt worthwhile and had done something amazing, you know, when you read at the end, all the, you're like, what's going on now? Some of the kids are therapists, some of the kids went to school, some of the kids, you know, really made a life for themselves. They saved all these lives. So that's where we come in, okay? Now, by, by slaughtering the sheep, the Jewish people were saying, you can't, we reject your hypocrisy. That it's legitimate to be cruel to some, and nice to others, nice to others, kind to others, because what that means is you have no concept of the equality of human beings because you have no concept of one God. So in a way, it does represent the concept of a single God. And therefore, if you look at the laws about the Pesach sacrifice, everything about it had to be one. It had to be one years old. It had to be completely unblemished, perfect. It had to be eaten in one sitting. You couldn't break any bones when you ate it because it had to be whole. You had to eat it in a group that was pre-organized, that was the, you know, already like a preset group. Everything about it was one. You even had to roast it and not boil it so it would get tighter and not fall apart. It all represented, this is the famous Maharal from Prague in the 1500s, explains it was all about the oneness of God. That's Judaism. Judaism does not, the beginning, the foundation of Judaism is that we can't keep lying to ourselves. We can't have a divided mentality where we allow ourselves certain <coughs> licenses and we forbid ourselves certain things depending on our point of view which comes from our own interest in self-preservation, self-advancement, I above the next person, what's best for me, because all of that in the end is a violation of the concept of a single God. It's a direct connection. So, I have yours like this. Now to connect it to a little bit, to put the two together. Um, we, we, um, when we, when we think about unifying ourselves, being a person that within our own hearts and souls, we operate with the notion of the, equality, the value of every human being. And we don't allow ourselves these distinctions. So there's nobody that's not in our group because they're not as good of us. You know, the, there's no one who isn't included. You know, there's, there's a, a huge emphasis on inclusion, on respect, on dignity. Even the people we don't necessarily bond with or connect with. But how do you do that? How do you get to a place where you're able to overlook the differences and sometimes annoying differences between you and other people so that we truly treat each other equal, fairly with love and respect, all people. And Jews have been very, very good at this. And by the way, regarding Israel as a side point, it's a very complicated situation. 
And to whatever extent the Arabs there are suffering unnecessarily, or innocent Arabs or good Arabs are suffering from the whole predicament, forget it, not only the Arabs, it's a terrible thing for the Jews to be in a position to cause that kind of suffering or inequality to any person. It's not what we're created for. It's not what we're about. It's a terrible blemish. And we don't really want to do it, but we're in a very difficult situation if we, you know, this is the problem there. It's hard to control the situation. But make no mistakes about it. Anybody who understands Judaism is, abhors the fact that this has to be done to whatever extent it's done. But, um, but uh, the idea is like this. How do we make sure that we, tr we, we are able to value every person? Okay? Um, so we have to start. This is just one approach. There's a gazillion approaches. I'll give you one. I go into a mystical approach. Okay? But it trickles down to real life. If, if you start learning a little bit about the Kabbalah and the mystical approach, so you know that there's a couple basic ideas, okay? That we speak of God as endless, right? You've heard this, limitless, everythingness, every, whatever is good and perfect and right and love and good and, I don't know, we don't, it's entirely everything that leaves no room for anything else, okay? That's a Kabbalistic vision of God. Now, the problem is then, where do we come in? How, how are we here? If God is everything, how are we here? The answer is that God, and this is not literal, he restrains some of that, some of himself, so to speak, pulls it back. The word, there's a word for it. What is, do you know the word? Symptom. It's not literal at all. It's very abstract. Right? Somehow he pulls back or withdraws or conceals some of that everythingness of himself so that there could be in our humans who have a perception that God is not right here right now. We don't see him, we forget, you know, we do our own thing. There's me and there's God, but he's, it's like a fetus in a womb. The mother, in a sense, retracts away, making room for the womb, right? So like her organs and everything kind of like pulls away. And a baby in that cocoon of that womb has no idea it even has a mother. It's can't know. It's surrounded by, by its own little shell, so to speak, its own cocoon of precludes it from knowing it even has a mother. Now, the mother knows it has a child. The mother knows there's a fetus and there's a baby in her. In fact, she's sustaining the baby every second. But the baby's in a very weird predicament, which we are all in, which is we can't know that. We could try to figure it out that it must be the case. But essentially, with our senses, we can't figure it out. Okay, now, in terms of Judaism, miracles that happen to us, the great prophets, you can... In this analogy, see like that uterine wall going transparent for a moment here and there. You know, and that would be a prophetic revelation or a miracle, something like that. You see, you know, what you're part of. But by and large, it's blocked from us, right? So God does it on purpose. Now, the problem is if God holds back all his light, how are we ever going to know that there's a God? There's got to be some, like, penetration into that enclosed void, so to speak, of Hashem's light, Right? The Kabbalah talks about that, that a, a ray of light, like an umbilical cord, comes into this space, and, uh, and we're able to get glimpses of it and, and connect ourselves with it, and, and so we're able to find the divine here within the physical. But the question is, where is that ray of light? Where is it exactly? You could travel the whole world, the entire world, you can orbit it, you can have the best thing. Where, where is it? Where is God's light that is, so to speak, in this womb? that we can like, oh, there it is, let's go. You might get a glimpse of it, like we said, at a moment of, great, of a great miracle or some great 
But where is it on a regular basis? The answer is it lives. Little bits of it, little glimmers of it, little sparks of it live in every single person, like in us. Each person has a bit of that light in them. And we know it. We feel it. We're not animals. We, there's something more to us. We want to devote ourselves to something greater than ourselves. We want to do something meaningful in this world. We want the greatest experience, if you ask anybody, do this experiment a hundred times, you'll always get the same answer. What is the most satisfying, deeply satisfying, happiest experience of your life? Everyone will always say something that has to do with connection. Connection to someone who loves them, who cherishes them, who they matter to. Because we know we're part of something bigger, and when we connect to it, when our little light within ourselves somehow feels the light in someone else, or even God's light, it's like this you know, unbelievable experience for a moment, however long it lasts, we have to hold on to it. But we know it's there. Something makes us way more than a, than a physical person. We spoke about last week. Much, you know, we want people to appreciate us for our souls. We, they're precious to us. That's where the light is. Now, here's the thing. No one person has within them all of Hashem's infinite light. We all, all human beings, have a bit of it. And the Jewish people, by the way, are called or lagayim, light to the nation, which we're supposed to cultivate that light, keep it burning strongly so it attracts all the other light and it, and it actually ignites all the other lights too. <coughs> we're supposed to ignite the light, the, that spiritual light in every person. That's our job. That's what we're here for. Because we kind of found it first. And therefore we're given the mission to hold on to it and ignite it in everyone. So obviously we need everybody. Maybe they're not my cup of tea, I don't like their attitude, and I'm not so sure about their personality. But within that person, there's light. And I recognize it, and I'm going to respect it their way. It doesn't mean I have to marry them, or even be their best friend. But I can know that for sure within them has got to be a little bit of this light. And together, all of the humanity, with no question, the Jewish people, with our concept, because we developed it, we lived by it, we died for it, we... We highly develop this idea. We, you know, we, we, we advance this idea to such a degree. Again, so much opposition. But we just refuse to give up this idea. We, um, we are meant to, of all people, we are meant to see it in everyone and respect it in everyone and try a little bit somehow by our conversation, by what we say, by how we treat them, to help them find it within themselves and ignite it a little bit. So there must be a sense of responsibility of achtut, unity, solidarity, connection, right? We also have an idea that if the light goes out, we are actually somewhat responsible. All people are responsible. We are very responsible as Jewish people to make sure that we're not the cause of that light flickering almost off, right? That would be called something that's called the chilul Hashem, the desecration of God's name. The word chilul comes from the word halal. Halal means void. As if this world is void of God. We make it seem like there's no God here and the light can die. So um, here's the thing. Whenever such a thing happens to our people and even to human beings in the world, it's a great tragedy, obviously. And we do have a notion of a sense of personal responsibility. What we do in this type of thing is say, okay, what, how do I do more? How do I improve? 
And if by definition, if my light is brighter, it ignites someone else's more. You know how that works. You're happier, you smile at someone, you're optimistic. It could save somebody's life. You don't, it literally could save a person's life. You don't know if somebody's so dejected and thinking about taking their life and they walk down the street and they see someone who smiles at them and says good morning and something, and they decide not to kill themselves. There are real, you know, it's real. So, um, so we, we say that, number one, despite the fact, like you, that we cannot answer anything about why. But despite that, we have guidance. We have a whole book of the Torah, a holy book, that tells us that we shouldn't fall into the trap of saying, because I can't understand, I can't do. I can't do anything. You know, the light can go out. I'm, I'm done. I'm extinguishing that light. So we, we have, so we stick with what, you know, we keep getting stronger, and we also sense that uh, not only can we not let it go out, that we are more, it's a calling, it's a calling to appreciate and to cherish life, as innocent life, and to um, never make that disconnection, which the Egyptians did, they didn't cherish life at all, they killed children to bathe in their blood. Right? Never to make that disconnection in our psyche that uh, some people are just more valuable than others. I don't have to be that compassionate. My compassion is, is reserved for certain people and not for other people. And um, I can make that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, and I'm okay with that. Because in the end, that is a violation of the notion of one God who has spread out his shechina, we call it, his indwelling. The fact that he, the light that is indwelling all people, especially within ourselves, and uh, and we're denying that <coughs> we're falling into the trap of the Egyptians. And the first thing the Jewish people did in order to exit, not just Egypt physically, but in their psyche, is destroy that idea, eliminate that idea, zero tolerance for that type of hypocrisy. You can't go further. You can't be a nation that has achdut that's unified or have your physicality unified with your spirituality if we let such a division exist in our lives and in our, and let it fool us. Right. Nation of the hypocrisy on its most basic level, the hypocrisy of the inequality of, of people, of lack of office with human beings. And then when you take it on this more, and I'm going to wrap up with this on a more abstract level, the hypocrisy of lack of unity within ourselves, between our mind and our heart, what we know is right and what we want to do, right? Between what we know to be true and what we just, you know, are in the mood of. That disconnect that we have to also stop having so much tolerance for. It's hard. And all other types of, um, all other types of allowances that we grant ourselves and make excuses for. But no, really, don't belong anymore. Not in, a, not in a unified person. Not in a person who is whole. Alrighty. <laughs> yeah. Some questions and yeah. Uh, thank you. That was, that was great. Um, I just have a quick question. So you were talking before, and sorry, I'm just looking at my notes. You were talking before about how um, we all know that there's something more because, or that God, is a little bit of God's light is within each of us to add meaning to our lives and make connections. And I've heard multiple times in many of these classes that really a Jew's purpose is to connect to ourselves, to each other, to God. Um, so then when horrible traumatic things like, I'm sure this is what you heard from earlier, you know, the, the fire 
in Brooklyn and whatnot that happens a couple of days ago, when things like that happen and any traumatic thing like that happens, wouldn't it be in our nature to like try to connect to that and, and reach out and help? Of course, of course, of course. It sounds like from what you're saying and from also just what I've heard in other classes that when we see horrible things happen, we're not supposed to be like, what's wrong with the world? We're supposed to like look into ourselves and say, how can we do better? But yeah, right. okay. so I don't, I, connection, so. yeah, I didn't want to not stress this. Yes, of course, you reach out with tremendous rahmanas for to the people for whatever you can do to help. Beware of all kinds of bogus, you know, fundraising campaigns. That you know, that's for the you know. But the real yes, of course, you try to help. Of course, but then of course we're left with big questions. Like many people, like how do you dive in the next morning? Like what are you supposed to think about? You know. Look, it's not the first time it's happened, but this is like really on a whole other level. But, uh, but so yeah, then you also have to deal with that part. So I was really dealing more with that. But of course, the first response is, what can you do? What can you physically do to show these people that they're not alone? That's it, that they're not alone. We're able to overcome the worst, the worst experience in life, essentially by that, by knowing that we're not alone. Because if you're alone, I mean, that's the, you know, that's a gravitational center. And a person kind of like defines, uh, and that's that they're not alone. And by the way, on the Facebook page, I don't know how many Facebook pages are, but there was one, and there was already yesterday like hundreds, 500 comments away from all over the world, Jews and Nazis and everybody. That's really important. But I mean, from like an understanding standpoint, so like you're saying that when suffering happens in the world, we're supposed to look inward, but we're creatures of philosophically try to understand it? No, you can't connect to it. How are you going to connect to this type of thing intellectually? Okay, and we all need new smoke detectors, of course, but how are you going to connect to it? There's no answer. There's no way for our mind to make a connection. I think what she's asking, Tony, yeah. she's, she's asking, on the one hand, right, we're saying that we have to look inward and respect how can we do better, and on the other hand, she's saying, but we have this drive to connect with other people, so is it, in, is that what you're saying? Is yeah, it, is it but what, wait, so why is that a so why contradiction? Is why, why is that a what? A like, what's the problem? Like, why can't you do both at the same time? Help other people deal with it, give No, sorry, it was, it's not about helping other people, it's, but connect, no, you're saying connect connecting to the family? To I just mean, like, how can I look at Perspectively, I'm trying to understand the world around me and connect and relate to things that are happening around me, but I'm supposed to deal with it. I think we operate on a lot of levels, so we have to try to do it. So if you want to set up a stand like they did and hand out smoke detectors, that's a way of being part of the world. Um, there's you know, things you can do. Um, and then at the same time, I think there's also the need to come to terms with, like, how do we deal with this? And we have a precedent. When we don't understand the way God conducts the world, and there's real suffering. And I'm not even talking about the suffering of the children. How in the world are the parents going to go on? Right. What are they, how are they supposed to live? So, so um, what do you do with that? So we have a precedent for that. We, uh, we, we have, a safer has been written by Moshe to help us deal with it. And I think it's at these type of tragedies, you go to that safer, you know? So I think, you have to, I think we operate on many levels. that spark? Can it be extinguished? That's really the question, right? So it seems that in very extreme circumstances, it can be. 
and hopefully we don't run into those people ever. Um, but by, by and large, it's not generally extinguished. And it doesn't mean you have to invite those people into your house if you're scared of them and all that. But the fact that there's a possibility that they are salvageable, that they could make something better of their life, that, you know, that they're not totally um, written off in God's eyes. So you're right, you might not be the person that's going to reach out to them, it's too risky. But on the other hand, if they wandered into your neighborhood and they were starving and they were helpless, of course you'd help them, right? So, you know, there's still, there's still something divine in a person. You know, but it has to be a safe situation to get involved with it, obviously. But from a distance, you know, we see people like that, and we you know that. I mean, that's our that's how we that's how we look at people that they're salvageable. I have a handyman, Mario, so he comes complete with tattoos, bandanas, chains, all kinds of bad stuff. You know, like he really looks mm -hmm. bad. The only thing about Mario that about Mario is he. Um, He's, uh, he's, he, uh, he's not bad anymore. So he was in prison. I don't know why I don't want to ask. But he was a drug addict. He was an alcoholic. He was hitting rock bottom. And he was in prison for who knows what. And when he was in prison, down there, not a Jewish person, uh, Puerto Rican, and um, without a Jewish family, without 10,000 different chesed organizations to reach out to him, without books, without any of the support system that we have, alone, by himself, something in him, as Neshama said, I, wasn't, I could do better, this isn't good enough, I need to start over. And to make a long story short, today he's been sober for 11 years, he does, um, he mentors, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, he mentors kids who have, you know, mm -hmm. drug rehab, he, um, mm -hmm. he's a wonderful person, and he loves the fact that he works for many families in the Jewish community and that we trust him. You know, one time I gave my credit card to go buy something and he calls me up at night and he says, oh, you know, I still have your credit card. I said, it's all right, Mary, I trust you. You'll know, give it back to me when you come next week. He loves the fact that he's respected. He's, and I'm astonished. Like, where did he find the strength? And the answer is that you don't, there really is something in every person and, um, and, uh, and it doesn't die. So when he was in his criminal phase, uh, you know, I wasn't going to hire him, but I didn't know him then. But the point is, we have to always consider the fact that people are salvageable. And, you know, and hopefully things will, things, and there's so many stories. The Hollywood loves to make movies about this type of theme. You know, the kid on the street or some lady picks up and, you know, you know how it works. Tons of movies like this. They love it because it's a you know which movie did it unbelievably, but that movie was so painful to watch. It was so disturbing. It was like hard to watch. I had to turn it off like ten times because I just couldn't talk. This heart was so painful. Did anyone see Precious? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that's what the movie's about. They picked an actress who is so unappealing to look at. And but it, you know you think within the first three minutes of the movie you're just gonna there's no way to identify with her and you. But within a few minutes, you are identifying with her. And the story is she's so degraded. She lives in such a hell, such an ugly... Well, I don't know what words to describe the, her situation. The ugliest hell you can imagine that a human being can endure in this world. And she picks herself up. 
she was some help with some people, you know, and she, Hollywood loves films like this because there's truth to it, and it's a deep human truth, and we all respond to it.